morning. Happy Mother's Day. You guys doing well? You guys ready for a Bible study? Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. Ladies, this is your day. No cooking, no cleaning, no laundry. Just kick back. It'll all be waiting for you first thing tomorrow morning. <laughs> Praise God. And it's piling high. My mom's really easy to uh, buy for. Uh, I thank God for my mom, but she's easy to buy for on Mother's Day. Basically, I just renew her subscription to her two favorite magazines, Biker Chick and Soldier of Fortune. She wears camouflage, goes out in the mountains and has a gun and just does some pretty crazy stuff. But whatever she's into, you know, it's, it's up to her. Those are dumb jokes, aren't they? I do them every year. You guys still laugh, huh? Yeah, whatever. How it changes everything is our current teaching series. Uh, we're looking at Acts 2, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The wait is over. Let me start off by asking you a couple questions for you to think about. Could there be more to the Christian life than what you are currently living? Could there be more to the Christian life than what you are currently living? Second question, when was the last time you saw undeniably the Spirit of God working in and through your life? When was the last time you saw undeniably the Spirit of God working in and through your life? Let me give you the context of where we're studying here and do that by making a very uh, important statement that I'm convinced that you cannot meet the resurrected Savior, Jesus, and remain the same. Convinced of that, add to that the Spirit-filled experience, and you are no longer suited for a normal life explainable by natural causes. That's the context. you got this group of believers who are somewhat disillusioned initially, and then Jesus resurrects from the grave, and then they're blown away. He spends 40 days with them, pouring into their life, talking to them about the kingdom of God. And then he says, hey, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until this promise takes place. The promise is found in the eighth verse of the first chapter. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, literally martyrs. And then you see this... Uh, this concentric circles of outreach happening in your, in your own backyard, in your own city, state, nation, throughout the world. In other words, your, your world will be so rocked that you'll want to rock the world around you because of my resurrection. But, but beyond that, even more so with this, what is known as the Spirit-filled experience. Now, let me set this up before we pray. I gave you some cross-references to study this. I happen to believe that there are three different experiences you can have with the Holy Spirit. The first one's found in John 14, 16 through 17. You don't need to turn there, but it's part of your notes. You can study this on your own just to, to set up this study. And remember Jesus in the upper room with his disciples just hours before he was going to be betrayed, be hanging on the cross for all of mankind. Uh, 14 chapter, he says... Uh, Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, just as I was with you, he will be with you, comforter, some translations say, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, so the world can't receive him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, talking to his disciples, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I want you to take note of the prepositions there. Two prepositions. With you, in you. We turn a few pages over, John chapter 20. Jesus has resurrected from the grave. Remember, he's with them for 40 days, giving them many convincing proofs of his resurrection. And this is what he says to them, verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So you get the idea that they have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was with them. So the Holy Spirit is with us to convict us and to convince us of our need for the Savior. When we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. That's the preposition within. And then you've got the experience of Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
So you got within and upon. And uh, we're talking about the upon, the epi uh, experience of the Holy Spirit. That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment, pray before we dive into our text. Real important topic this morning about the supernatural work of God in our lives. Father in heaven, you, you are infinitely great. You are satisfyingly good. Knowing you, loving you, obeying you is life's greatest purpose. It is life's greatest pursuit. It is life's greatest pleasure. Your spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in those who have placed their ultimate faith, hope, and love in your son, Jesus. Along with that amazing privilege and potential, you have promised us that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we would receive power to be your witnesses, your martyrs, literally. So God, we pray this morning, pour your Holy Spirit upon us today like a cool, refreshing dip in a backyard pool on a hot summer day so that we can show the world your glory, your splendor, all of who you are and how satisfying you are to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at our text. Let me read. We'll go to verse 13. And then we'll unpack it. We're going to talk about this spirit-filled experience. This third, some call it the second experience, being baptized in the Holy Spirit or the spirit-filled experience. There's different language that's used for it. That's what I believe he's talking about here. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, Ah, they are filled with new wine. This is God's Word. So the Spirit-filled experience, three things. Let me go through them. The first one is it is a profound sense of God's presence and redemptive plan. Number two, it is a foretaste of heaven giving us a taste for heaven. And then thirdly, it is a heart for the world of lost people who matter to God. I draw all three of these from this text. Let me unpack each of these with three thoughts under each one of these points. Here's the first one. Spirit-filled experience is a profound sense of God's presence and redemptive plan. Let me give you a warning. It's the first fill in the blank. Don't get distracted by the unusual phenomena. Let me spend just a little bit of time on that. In verses 2 through 4, you've got what? Wind, fire, and tongues. Sounds like a 70s rock band, doesn't it? That was actually earth, wind, and fire, though, wasn't it? Okay. Okay, good try. Um, So wind, fire, tongues tongues. Um, Did this ever happen again? Well, not so much the wind and the fire, but the tongues did happen. I put it down here, Acts 10.46. It says that they, they begin speaking in tongues, and obviously somebody understood what they were saying because it says speaking in tongues, extolling God. Then you have another episode later on 
in uh, Acts 19.6 where it says that they begin to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit came upon them, speaking in tongues and prophesying. So was it that they were speaking in tongues and some were, some were speaking in tongues, some were prophesying, or was it that they were speaking in tongues and prophesying? It says that it was kind of a combination of both there based on, on the text. Um, here's the issue that I have. I come from a Pentecostal background. I love my background. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, and yet my Assembly of God background, and they actually teach this, if you're familiar with Assemblies of God, they actually teach that the speaking in tongues is the initial uh, evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, they believe that you haven't really been baptized in the Holy Spirit unless you have had this initial evidence of speaking in other tongues. Now, here's my dilemma, is, uh, is that both, uh, um, both in experience, but you, don't, you always have to judge experience and filter experience through Scripture. So both my understanding of Scripture, and I've studied this for many years, and also from my own experience, and, and see if you, you haven't experienced this too. I have known people who didn't speak in tongues that were amazingly spirit-filled. Okay? And then I also knew people who spoke in tongues that were not amazingly spirit-filled. Okay? There was just something about them. I thought, wow, you speak in tongues and yet, my goodness sakes, I would expect a little bit more of uh, something happening in your life. In fact, and you've heard me share this before too, and I'm not trying to get down on them, but I had, there were guys in my, when I was raised in the church that there was, uh, that there were people in that church that the youth pastor didn't, what, didn't say that he could speak in tongues, and yet he had amazingly spirit-filled life, amazing love and joy and peace and, and the things that I began to see in his life, and yet there were those that were upset at him because he didn't, thinking that he wasn't spirit-filled and wanted to basically tar and feather this poor man and run him out of the church. And what was interesting, too, with some of those, it was, you've heard me say this many times, too, maybe not many times, but maybe back when we did this teaching series on Spirit-Filled Life, is that those that were speaking the loudest, kind of Spirit-filled, speaking in tongues on Sunday morning, I saw those same people, at least a few of them, on Monday night, church softball, speaking in another tongue, okay, to uh, the refs, you know, the umpires and, and the other teams and stuff. So I always thought, and I'm not, I understand speaking in tongues or the Spirit-Filled Life doesn't make you perfect. I understand that. But I would expect that if you've encountered God and you're saying that you've had this encounter with God, I would expect that uh, it's going to change you. I, I guess what I'm saying along with this is that I don't care how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. And whatever experience you want to say that you've experienced, I don't, and you're going to see when we go through this, it's not so much the experience as much as the, the transformation that, that it should bring to your life. And... Uh, and in fact, if you study it a little bit further, where it talks about this, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I would encourage you to study it. By the way, I do speak in tongues. And, um, and it's very, very personal and private for me. And uh, because of that, I think I'm much more spiritual than most of you. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed because it was a joke. And so... Uh, and it was, it, it was meant to be a joke, but I, it's a prayer language for me. And, uh, but what the struggle has been for me, do everyone, is everyone supposed to speak in tongues? Because I've known people who struggled with the fact that they never spoke in tongues and they felt that therefore they were not spirit-filled. And yet I looked at their life and I would describe to them, I said, have you ever had this experience and have you done this and have you done that? And they go, yeah, 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 but I've never spoken in tongues, therefore I'm not spirit-filled. And I'd say, no, that's not true. You're more spirit-filled than most people that I know that do speak in tongues. So I don't know that that's necessarily the, the, the primary uh, experience that you should be looking for. Whether you speak in tongues or not, don't put so much weight upon that experience is all I'm saying. And so what I believe in my understanding of Scripture and my own personal experience is that it is, it is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, but not the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense to you? So it's one of many, and it tells us in actually 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where it talks about that. It also gives some really great counsel and insight on speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, all, all are baptized by one spirit into one body. And it gives you the idea in that same chapter, verses 10 and 30 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, that not all speak in tongues. So you get that idea that maybe it's just a gift for some and not for everyone. I'll let you figure that one out. 
on your own. I'm not certainly going to tell you one way or the other, but I think that there should be something that we look more to. So, so don't get distracted by the unusual phenomena. We've already been a little bit distracted because I had to explain all that to you. So let's move to the next point here. And here it is. It is the truth about Jesus filling our hearts and overflowing our lives. I believe that when you study this text, it's so easy to look at the wind, fire, and the tongues and be preoccupied with that. Uh, But I really believe what's happening here, did you notice what it said in verse 11? It is the truth about Jesus filling our hearts and overflowing our lives. Verse 11 is, what were they saying in tongues? They were telling the mighty works of God. The word mighty works is actually not two words. It's just one word in the Greek. It's megalios. And this is what it means. It means, the word means magnificent, excellent, splendor, wonderful. You could even say the mega works of God. The mega works of God. Now, here's my question as it relates to that. Before this experience, were there those in New Testament, as you read through the gospel accounts before Acts, because after Acts, then you have all the letters. So was there any kind of spirit-filled experience before that time? Do you think there was any kind of spirit-filled experience before the book of Acts? Anybody? What do you think? Okay, yeah. Anybody? Show of hands, you think? Yeah, right on. Right on. Yeah, there was, and in fact... There were many different, even in the Old Testament, but, but here, let me give you a couple in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, verse 41, and verse 67, you have both Elizabeth and Zechariah. It actually says they were filled with the Spirit, and what did they do? They began to declare the redemptive works of God with joy and power. Isn't that Interesting. So it's saying what they were doing, only it wasn't in tongues. It was in the language that people could hear. They were declaring. So what it was saying is that they were saying, God is magnificent. He's excellent. He's splendid. He's wonderful. Mega works. Wow, can you believe what God has done? Which, by the way, I really believe that that's, a, that's, a, that's kind of the acid test of those that, to me, who are really walking in the Spirit and really have an understanding of what the Christian faith is all about, is that they don't have an attitude of entitlement and that God's indebted to me because I go to church and read my Bible and pray and that, therefore, you know, God's supposed to be nice to me and do all these great things for me. Actually, I believe that someone who's living in the fullness of the presence of God and the Spirit, a profound sense of God's presence and redemptive plan, is that they have an overwhelming sense of wonder And indebtedness towards God. And that's what you, they're, they're, they're like, wow, oh God, you are so amazing. I can't believe that you are in my life. You have done so many wonderful things. You continue to do wonderful things. And, you know, it's, just, it's kind of one of those things. That's what that word means. Is there any other evidences of that other than Elizabeth and Zechariah? Yeah, actually in Jesus, Luke three, twenty-one through 22 Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. You get kind of that idea of that upon experience. Holy Spirit descends as a dove upon Jesus, and he is assured of his sonship. You remember the Father saying, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased? By the way, I think that part of that Spirit-filled experience should be your heart crying, Abba, Daddy, and understanding that he is saying to you, You are my beloved Son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. I believe that's part of that Spirit-filled experience. You have this overwhelming sense that he's your dad and he's going to take care of you and everything's going to be okay. That's part of that. I think that's that profound sense of God's presence and redemptive plan. You also see in the life of Christ, Luke 4, 1 through 13, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness where he is tempted. And how does he, how does he deal with the temptation? He declares the Word of God in resistance to being tempted by Satan, which I believe is evidence of that Spirit-filled. So when you're able to come against temptation when otherwise you would cave into, give into, then you're able to, through the Word of God within you, begin to face off and be able to turn away, not take the bait, so to speak, but begin to embrace more fully the promise that God has. The power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise through His Word. That would certainly be evidence to me of that spirit-filled experience, this profound sense of God's presence and His redemptive plan. So you see that in the life of Christ. 
Now, after that, do you see experiences of spirit-filled experience after Acts two? Yeah, absolutely. We're going as we study through the Book of Acts. In Acts four, chapter four, you see this whole group of people gathered, and they're under heavy persecution. And they don't actually pray, God, help us, uh, you know, relieve us of this persecution. They actually pray, God, give us boldness to face the persecution. It says in Acts 4.31 that they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. That would be Spirit-filled. If there's ever been a time in your life when you have been able to face down with boldness, people that would even persecute you or ridicule you or try to shame you in some way. This boldness, uh, I've seen it in my life uh, in, in the workplace when people, uh, they ridiculed me because of being a Christian. And I was outspoken about being a Christian. But there is this power, the boldness that watered on a duck's back. It's not that you're antagonistic trying to shove it down anybody's throat, but sometimes you just get the antagonism just being who you are. But you're able to deal with it because you have, because Christ is more real to you. His love for you, I mean, my goodness, the Son of God died for you. This person you work with that maybe at some point in the future, I mean, he was a cre- he's a crea- created being by the one that, that thinks the world of you. So, I mean, you can kind of see that as you begin to see that, that becomes more real to you. You can fend off that ridicule and persecution. You see that happening. Um, you see that happening with this early church, Acts four thirty one. You also see it in Stephen, Acts seven fifty five through fifty six. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. He proclaims the mighty works of God as they're getting ready to chuck rocks to his head in the face of opposition. And you see it in Paul in Acts thirteen nine. And so there's that boldness, and there's this power. So it's a profound sense of God's presence and redemptive plan. Don't get distracted by the unusual phenomena. It is the truth about Jesus filling our hearts and overflowing our lives. So what are, what are the mega works? What are the mega works? I believe, uh, I believe it's the gospel, but there are certainly times in my life that I know that God reveals himself to, to us through creation, I mean, all three of my kids being born, I was just in tears. I had that sense, wow, God, you are wonderful. Mega works. This is amazing. All four of my grandkids wasn't in the room when they were born, but got to see them right after that. Heard the little, wah, the little cry, and you're just like, oh, start crying. I cried with them. I was crying as much as he was crying. You know, it's like, oh, this is, this is amazing. Um, you look at pictures from the Hubble telescope, you're like, we're like a little microscopic speck of dirt, dust on this planet compared to all the vastness of the universe. And yet this God, this God, this God of the galaxies that holds all this in his hands, he's my friend. He loves me. He died for me. So I've had that sense, you know, through creation, through conscience, intuitively, that sense of right and wrong, that sense of justice. Many people celebrated this last week over uh, Osama bin Laden's... uh, being put away, you know, coming face to face with a Navy SEAL and put a bullet in his face. And uh, American justice. If, you, if you're troubled over that, just read. Uh, and certainly there should be an aspect to our hearts that, 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 that is somewhat grieved over that and his resistance towards the gospel and resistance towards God and also his perpetration of, of the wicked, evil things that he did against uh, American citizens. So there should be that grief, but also, you know, that grief over that and that, that sense of like, okay, yeah, he got what he deserved, and yet at the same time a grief that, that he was so, so lost and, and leads and led a lot of people astray. And so there should be that balance. But American justice, and if you struggle with that, you need to read the 13th chapter of Romans. And so when the very sense that there was celebration in uh, Times Square and Washington and Chicago, all these places, why would we celebrate something like that? It's a sense of justice that God has placed within our own heart. In fact, what if he would have been captured, not killed, and uh, obviously tried, convicted, and in the sentencing, the judge said, we'll give you 100 days, $100, you're out. Would that bother you? Yeah, right now, just me saying that, you go, What? I'd like to get a hold of that guy. And I saw people actually kind of responding like that. Why is that? Why would we have that sense of right and wrong within us? 
That's, that's a manifestation of, of the work of God in our lives. So we have creation conscience. We have this book, which is absolutely wonderful. And I saturate myself in this book as God speaks to me regularly and faithfully through it and, and to all of us as we teach his word week in and week out. But then he, he has revealed himself to us ultimately through his son Jesus who showed up here on this planet earth. But I'll tell you what, as I was reading from one commentator here recently, all of those ways that God reveals his, his mega works to us is like the sun kind of getting through the clouds, just kind of peering through the clouds. But there's one way that God shows his glory to us, and he has shown his glory to us once and for all. This is the mega works of God. You know what it is? It's the cross. It's like a lightning strike. It's like, wow, here's the glory of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's what they were proclaiming. They were proclaiming the incarnation, the substitutionary atonement. I believe that they were proclaiming his resurrection and his ascension. They were proclaiming all of the works of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And, uh, and I'm telling you, when that becomes a reality to you. I believe that's part of that spirit-filled experience. By the way, you need to know that what Osama bin Laden faced with a Navy SEAL putting a bullet in his head and his, apparently in his chest, that American justice dims and is just a shadow, just, just a light. It's, it's nothing really compared to the justice that he faced when he stood before the God of the galaxies and gave an account of his life. The Bible says in Hebrews, it is appointed on the man wants to die and then the judgment. And it says every one of us, every person, it says in the second chapter of Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And I'm telling you, the bullet in the face and in the chest was nothing compared to the judgment that he faces before Almighty God. And every one of us will face that judgment. Because there's something about God that he is a just God and he must mete out judgment upon sinful mankind. And the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the wonderful news, that if we will put our faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? We don't receive judgment. Guess what we receive? Mercy and grace. See, when you look at the cross, the cross is a collision. It is a collision of judgment and mercy and grace. It is wonderful. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you don't receive judgment and all the judgment was placed upon the judge. The judge the just judge was judged to justify us sinners. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. So we put our faith in Jesus. We don't get judgment. We get mercy. But better than that, we get grace. We get his presence. We get all the, the resources of heaven. That is amazing. Do you understand all that you have through Jesus Christ? If you did, and you lived in the reality of it, you would have unspeakable and glorious joy. But too often, we don't live in the reality of it. We don't. We have a lot of pride and unbelief and idolatry, constantly, constantly substituting God for that. And so I believe this spirit-filled experience is this profound sense of God's presence and his redemptive plan. I love the sensory language that the Bible uh, uses as it relates to... Uh, in fact, let me give you the next point before I move to that. I'll talk about more about that sensory language as it relates to the cross. But, but it's really getting that sense of the cross deep into our heart and understanding the, the beauty of Christ through the cross. But here's the next point. It happens in the context of ministry for greater ministry. So we got the promise. And so what were these folks doing as they were waiting for the promise? They were doing what we should always be doing. They were sticking together. That's community. They were praying together. They were studying together. They were working together. And it was in this context that God poured his Holy Spirit upon us, upon them. And he will pour his Holy Spirit upon us as we do that. It happens in the context of ministry for greater ministry. 
I don't believe that we have any claim on His power if our heart isn't about being a witness. In fact, if we are consumers, we come to church for ourselves and we make life all about ourselves, it's doubtful that you're going to have that Spirit-filled experience. But if you come with this covenant love kind of a relationship with God, then your life is not about you, but it's about Him. And you want more of Him. You desire more of Him. He's going to pour His Holy Spirit upon you. And, and He's going to begin to use you phenomenally in your life. And He does that because He wants you to be His witness. And I think that's what we see through this. It happens in the context of, of ministry for greater ministry. There's a verse, in fact, uh, how many remember the series that we did just at the beginning of the year? Um, Spirit-filled, Spirit-filled is what we called it. Anybody remember that? Okay, three of us. I'll have to do that. Okay, was there more? Show of hands, show of hands. Oh, thank you very much. Four of us now. Actually, there was quite a bit more. So, you guys remember? What, what was the key verses to that? I mean, we spent four weeks on these verses. I tried to drill them into your head. And, and, and they are Ephesians 5... Five, I almost start speaking in tongues right there. Uh, five, eighteen to twenty-one, and he said, "Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." In fact, he goes on in that, which is, I think, is a great cross reference to what we're studying here. Um, let me read it. He says, "And then addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart." So this is the result of the spiritual life: giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on. This is the context. You got to remember this. This is important because it's in the context of ministry for greater ministry. He talks about husbands and wives. He talks about parents, children, parenting. He talks about slaves and masters, which is uh, talking about employer-employee relationship. Then he talks about spiritual warfare. Now, why would he say, be filled with the Spirit in that context? Because we desperately need the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as it relates to marriage. Don't we? I mean, if you're going to have the kind of marriage that would be a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to be spirit-filled. If you're going to be the kind of parent or child, if you're going to be a good employer-employee, man, I'm telling you, if you're going to face off with the enemy through spiritual warfare, you need to have that. So it comes in the context of ministry for greater ministry. But here's the deal. Let me see if I can get help you to understand this. The spirit-filled experience isn't some abstract experience of peace, love, and groovy vibes, okay? It's not where we just kind of all sit around and just go, make me feel better, Jesus. I just want to feel better. You know, as it's some kind of an abstract kind of a feeling. It's, it's not that. It's this. Let me see if you can track with me here. It is a deep experience of rationally held truth. It's a deep experience of rationally held truth. See, I believe that the Christian faith is both rational and mystical. It's too mystical to be only rational. It's too rational to be only mystical. If, you, if you're just rational, you're going to have dead, or, or, dead orthodoxy. almost didn't say that right, did I? Dead orthodoxy. But if it's just all mystical, you're going to be weird. Okay, what if I were to, you know, I was praying this last week. I was praying this last week and the Lord told me, I know this is, this is a heartbreak for me and I, I'm having a hard time with it, but he told me that I need to trade my wife in. <laughs> for a younger and more efficient model. She spends way too much money. And we need to cut back down on expenses. And I've been praying, God, what can we do? And he says, get rid of her right now. <laughs> Praise God. Why do you guys laugh? That's weird. I had a hard experience. I had a hard experience. But it's not based on objective truth. That's why you laugh. It's a deep experience on rationally held truth. I've seen people have some of the weirdest experiences and called it the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking, what in the world? I don't see that in here somewhere. What the heck? What was that? I actually had a couple one time. 
And they told me that they, they wanted me to marry them. And I go, so, okay, that's really interesting. How did you meet? Met in a bar. Okay. So what made you think you needed to marry each other? Because you've only known each other for like a couple weeks. When we were standing on the back, on his back porch, and there was a dove that landed on the statue in their backyard. I'm going, what the heck? I said, so like the statue, did it talk to you? Get married. Or was it the bird that talked to you? You two are meant to be together. You know, I'm like, what the heck? And they were serious. They had this experience, but it's not based on objective truth. So it's a deeply held, it's a deeply, it's a deep heart experience on this rational, objective truth. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the cross that says, I am for you and not against you. It is the truth of the fact that when you begin to understand who it is that is in your life and walks with you through your day, you have a sense of, it's that, I love the fact that the Bible uses sensory language to describe a lot of our experience with God. It's that sense of, wow, wow, God. When your wow of God is greater than your wow of your loss of job or whatever people say against you or whatever, that's when you're going to be able to overcome that wow with the greater wow of God. The reason why we cave into the trials of life is because we don't have this God who's wow. Wow, God. That's the spirit-filled experience. My goodness, you are for me. Why am I sweating all this other stuff? You took care of my worst problem through the cross. All the other things are flea bites, not to minimize the issues. But even Paul said, those are light and momentary issues, considering the glory that we have in him. The wow. And then the hmm. Hmm. You know how I was able to overcome a lot of the things that would, would tempt me? My temptations are are working too much and people approval, the way that I was able to overcome the mm, of workaholism and people approval and all that was that I had a greater mm, in God. The satisfaction I found in Him exceeded the satisfaction I found in workaholism. And then I was able to say, I've worked too much this week. Nope. Can't see you. I was able to draw boundaries because I had this, uh, a sense of satisfaction in Him. The mm, the wow, God is great, and God is good. God is great, wow, God is good. Mm. I love, the Bible gives us a lot of sensory language. I was, I was thinking about this, Psalm 34, 8. You guys know what that is? It's not on your notes. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You've never tasted if you've never tasted of goodness until you've tasted of his goodness. And when you taste of his goodness, everything else in this world doesn't even come close. It also says in Psalm, it was interesting, it's in the part of that same same uh, Psalm thirty four, eighteen. It says, uh, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. When you begin to go through difficulties and you get beat up by life, what that verse is telling us is that he's close to you. This is not some theoretical wishful thinking, some platitude, some bumper sticker theology. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I've experienced it and I've seen many others experience it, that he is a father of compassion, a God of all comfort. He is for real. And when he becomes a greater reality, he's not just a concept But he's a reality. He becomes your comforter. He strengthens you. He sustains you. He is with you. And you experience his presence in your life. That's what it's saying. He is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Why would it say that? Because it's real. He does that. It's amazing. Okay, man, we spent so much time on that first part. Ah. Here we go. So, a profound sense of God's presence and redemptive plan. Here's the next one. A foretaste of heaven giving us a taste for heaven. And I, I get that from uh, 
verse 1 where it says, and when the day of Pentecost. So why? Why was this so strategic for him to send his Holy Spirit upon them on the day of Pentecost? Pentecost was an annual Jewish holiday that comes 50 days after the Jewish holiday, the Passover. It's to commemorate Moses going up on Mount Sinai and having an encounter with God. So certainly it's this idea of an encounter with God. But it's more than that. Israel was an agrarian society, and when the first harvest came in, they would have a feast of the first fruits to thank God for the harvest and to give an offering of first fruits. Leviticus 23.20. So this was kind of a Jewish Thanksgiving day, and so it was a first fruits. So let me give you the next couple fill-in-the-blanks that I think that the reason why it's so significant was on the day of Pentecost, because this is a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. Next point on your notes, so the foretaste of heaven giving us a taste for heaven. The Holy Spirit came on this day as first fruits of the believer's inheritance. We're going to talk about this. Oh my goodness, i got at least another two hours before we end today. No, we got, we got time. Let's knock it out. So the Holy Spirit came on this day as the first fruits of the believer's inheritance. Are you aware of the fact that when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit and God placing His Holy Spirit within us, He uses this idea in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 and Ephesians 1, 11 and 14, that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what's, uh, what's to come. So what is a deposit? A deposit is a down payment. And down payment means there's more to come. So he's saying, when I've given you the Holy Spirit, it's like this deposit guaranteeing more to come. Next point in your notes, first fruits are a small taste of what is coming in the future with Christ. So when they would celebrate first fruits, they'd have this party because they knew that this was at the beginning of the harvest and the greater harvest was coming. So it gives us that picture. Now, in Romans 8, 18 through 26, Paul talks about using this, this metaphor with the first fruits and associating it with the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he uses this language. He says, the whole creation is subjected to futility and bondage to corruption is groaning. And in, in other words, what he's saying is that the universe is running down. Second law of thermodynamics. But then he goes on in this text and he says, but we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit giving us hope and help. Another good cross reference is 2 Corinthians 4.16. It says, though outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So this is the first fruits, the experience of the Holy Spirit, placing the Holy Spirit within us. And also this, the Holy Spirit coming up on the day of Pentecost is the first fruits of one day in the future when the whole universe will be enveloped with the presence of God stopping all decay. And this is just a taste to give us a taste for heaven, a taste of heaven now so that we will have a taste for heaven if you want to read a great passage, Revelations 21, 1 through 7, it gives you the idea of what's going to happen. That when you, uh, when you go to be with the Lord, when, when He sets up His kingdom on this planet earth, and we have this restored heavens and new heavens and a new earth, it will be absolutely wonderful. You have the picture of Jesus sitting down with us and wiping away all of our tears. I mean, imagine just being with the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without you. See, that's the, that's the mega works of God, that he would die for you and give you fullness of life. And now you are with him and in his presence. And though we get glimpses of that from time to time here during worship time through the study of God's word, I remember having that experience uh, when I was working on the fire department after we'd come back from a call and I'd go up in my cubicle. There were times that I would pray in my cubicle or read, read God's Word and meditate. And there were times that it was almost, it was unbelievably heavenly, a sense of His presence. It was just a taste. He didn't want to leave that, that moment in time. That's what he's talking about here. And... Uh, and yet it's in the context of us, uh, second law of thermodynamics, things wasting away. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day after day. Boy, the older I get, the more that's coming home strong. You know what I'm saying? Man, I can barely sometimes get up in the morning and Nancy and I go out and hike. And, and it takes me like a couple hours just to get my body warmed up. And uh, that came really 
home to me not too long ago. A couple years ago, we did a wedding for a couple in our church, and there were some friends that we hadn't seen for quite some time, and they, they came over and started talking to us. And, and I remember them uh, coming up to both Nancy and I, and they looked at Nancy, and they go, Oh, my goodness, that's amazing. You haven't changed a bit, Nancy. Oh, you know. And then they looked over at me. You could hear crickets. And then they kind of looked at me and did a double take, and they go, Ray, we didn't recognize you. Um, there was a, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a junior high little person that came up to me and uh, they said, Wow, you look much older up close and personal than what you look on stage. And I said, you little midget demon, I'm going to cast you out of this church. Thanks for helping me to be renewed inwardly. I'll tell you what, I am getting much older and I don't even look like my wedding picture. There's no doubt about it. But I'll tell you what, I am being renewed Day after day. I have never in my whole life experienced more of his love and his joy and his peace than what I experience now. And I've never had such a longing for heaven that I have now. So I can hardly wait. I mean, if I live another 15, 20, 30 years, let's see, I'll be... 40. Um, I'll be like 70 or 80, something like that. But, uh, but I mean, I, I can't, I mean, it, it's just amazing. I, I sense, though my body is wearing out, I have a sense of his presence. Unlike ever before. I think that's what he's talking about here. He says, we, the church, have the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit to overcome, to stem the tide to overcome the spiritual, the psychological, the social, physical breakdown of the fallen world. But remember, it's only the first fruits. It's only the first fruits. So I, I gave you a lot of cross-references. We have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When you begin to understand the gifts of the Holy Spirit that He gives us, that supernaturally God wants to use us to bring grace to others, and then we have the fruit of the Holy Spirit that no matter what we're going through, uh, we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of our life. God working in our lives supernaturally. So, I mean, we can give up our small ambitions, repent of our low expectations. We can have great hope for ministry. We have the first fruits, but it's only the first fruits. We've got to keep that in mind. The Bible uses, uh, a lot of theologians actually use this other kind of language, too, to help to describe kind of the period of time that we live in. They would say that we live in uh, the already, but not yet. We live between the first coming and the second coming. The first fruits and then the full harvest is coming when we, when we stand before Christ. And so we need to keep that in mind because it brings balance to our lives. Because if you overemphasize the already, the first fruits to the exclusion of the not yet, the full harvest, you'll be too optimistic expecting quick solutions to problems. You'll fail to expect any suffering or tragedy to come. And you'll underestimate the power of remaining sin in your heart. If you overemphasize the not yet, the future harvest to the exclusion of the already, the first fruits, you will be too pessimistic about personal church and society change. Here's what I'm learning through the years is that sometimes he calms the storm and other times he calms his child in the storm. Either way, we should ask boldly, surrender completely, and believe that His grace is sufficient regardless of what we're going through. He will never leave us or forsake us. Because it's lethal to think that God never calms the storms. And it's just as lethal to believe that He always calms the storm, though eventually He will calm every storm. And so there has to be this balance. This is just the first fruits. Remember, it's only the first fruits with the full harvest coming face to face with our Savior. But I'll tell you, there's an amazing amount of His grace and love that we can experience right now. Let me give you a verse. You can write it down. Here's my Mother's Day verse for you this weekend. It's Isaiah 49. I always think, when I think of Mother's Day, I think of my mom, who was a, was a phenomenal mom, and I think of my mother-in-law, and I think of my wife. And 
I, I think of my daughter. I think of uh, the, the women that have had an impact in my life. I think of this verse, and it, it, it gives me revelation of our Father God and His love for us. It's Isaiah 49, verses 15 through 16, and it says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. When that becomes real to you, though moms nursing a baby, he's saying they they may forget, but probably not. But I'm not going to forget you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. He hasn't forgotten you. He loves you. He's engraved you on his hands. What's that? Yeah. Nail-pierced hands. He died for you. If he took care of your worst problem, everything else is a flea bite in comparison. He'll take care of you. He will see you through. And the Spirit-filled experience is, is making that not just a concept, but it becomes a reality that gives you what you need to face the difficulties of your life. Here's the last one. A heart a heart for the world of lost people who matter to God. I think that's what most of the text is really about. And it goes in line with what he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So it's really about uh, world evangelism. It's about how the impact that our lives would make. And so we have this spirit-filled experience as a profound sense of God's presence, a redemptive plan, a foretaste of heaven, giving us a taste for heaven, and then a heart for the world of lost people who matter to God. Verses 5 through 11. The Holy Spirit brings racial harmony and cultural unity. The Spirit-filled life or experience is more than just declaring the mega works of God, but that you begin to get along with people now that before Christ you couldn't get along with. You begin to actually love your enemies. Now, what's interesting is that most of this passage gives this, this long table of nations. Why? Why? When was the last time that you see a table of nations? Genesis 10 and 11. Chapters 10 and 11. And you have the Tower of Babel, remember? And so you've got the people of the earth decided to be their own masters, make a name for themselves, which leads to racism, elitism, racial and cultural hostility, the destruction of human community. And so what does God do? He confuses their tongues... But when the Holy Spirit comes down, he brings racial harmony and cultural unity. And the first worship service and message was in what language? In all the languages of the nations. And the common denominator is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Galatians 3, 28 through 29 says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ. So if you're spirit-filled, you're going to see this. Racial harmony and cultural unity. Here's the next thing. The best way to attract others to Christ is to lip smack about God's mega works connecting with their minds and hearts. Did you notice verse 11? It says, telling in our own tongues. These are people saying that. They're telling us in in our own tongue the mega works of God. It's the classic story here of my son Ryan uh, when he was a little boy sitting in his high chair, he would eat his Cheerios. And as he was eating his Cheerios with each bite, he would go, mmm. And then he'd take another bite go, mmm, every bite. Not just a couple bites, every bite. And then he'd tip the bowl up and goes, mmm. And I'm thinking, what's in the Cheerios? Because I made those Cheerios and I want some of those Cheerios. And he taught me a good lesson that that's what God wants us to do and it's the best way we can bring glory to him is to, mm, God, you are wow and you are mm. If I were to look at your life, is there something about your life that would attract me to him? Is there a mm? Or are you doing more mm when it comes to the stock market or mm to... You know, the tickets you have to your favorite games or do you do more excitement over those things as opposed to the glory? And if you are, man, you have yet to taste of his goodness. 
I'm telling you, his wow and um exceeds all wow and um in this world. And that's the best way. Listen, parents, parents, listen to me. I, I, I tell you this with all sincerity and desperation. We're losing a whole generation of kids. It breaks my heart because they don't see parents that have a sense of wow and mmm. The best thing you can give to your kids is a vision of the glory of God. And you do that through your sense of mmm in their language. That's what's happening. They spoke their language and they heard them talking about him. If you want to reach your neighbors, you want to reach your co-workers, you want to reach your family members, it's by you finding your greatest satisfaction in him and letting it overflow your life to them. Okay. That was kind of one of those spirit-filled experiences. I didn't do that in the first service. It's interesting, sometimes God will speak to me so strongly at different times while I'm teaching. I don't understand it. I just hold on for the ride, okay? It's kind of interesting, really it is. We'll sit down and talk more about it, especially as we head through the book of Acts because it's a profound book. Here's your next point on your notes. The mega works of God will give you a humble confidence. It'll give you love and truth that will reach some and repel others. Um, Verses 12 and 13, you'll notice that some were amazed and some mocked. And so if, if you're doing it in a balanced way, you're gonna, some are going to be amazed at your mm and wow, and some will mock you. Are you tough enough to handle the mocking? Here's, uh, if I'm repelling everyone, it's because I'm, I'm not humble. I've got too much pride, and it's all truth minus love. But if I'm reaching everyone, everybody's my buddy, everybody's my friend, it's because I'm, I'm not confident, I have fear, and it's love minus truth. Let me wrap it up by giving you a, a, a phenomenal quote from Charles Spurgeon. This is where we're going to end and we're going to stand and, and conclude with prayer. But I want you to hear this quote because I think that he's, he's giving us a glimpse of the Spirit-filled life. He preached this sermon when he was 20 years old. And this is just an excerpt from the sermon. January the 7th, 1855. Listen to what it says. See if you can see the spirit-filled life in this. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thoughts that vain man would be wise, but he is like a, a wild ass's colt, and with the solemn exclamation, I am but yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while it's humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Now, for those of us that are struggling this morning, this is meant for us. If you're struggling, listen to to these words. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietness, a peace for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? 
Would you drown your cares? He's talking about you want to get rid of these things? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow and so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Stand with me for closing prayer. God, we just got just a glimpse of your glory this morning through your word. And God, we want more of that in our lives. We want to be spirit-filled. So give us this week, as we walk with you, a profound sense of your presence and your redemptive plan, a foretaste of heaven, giving us a taste for heaven and a heart for the lost, the heart for the world of lost people who matter to you. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. God bless you.